Yes, and, and I did have that conversation with some teachers. And, and you can see, unfortunately, the historical trauma that things like, you know, uh, state standard testing and all that has wreaked on a lot of our really experienced and excellent educators. You know, one of the things when I came to Lincoln is there, there's always that verbiage of like, oh, well, teachers at those schools don't really care about kids. Right. False, false, false. False. I teach with some of the most big hearted, loving, caring teachers who have been dedicated to the students mm -hmm. of Lincoln High School for years, years and could easily have moved into a different school. But they chose to stay here for dedication to the community. The disconnect is that some of these practices, these student centered practices, advisory, internship, um, um, regular phone calls home, that is kind of mentally seen as being, oh, well, that's what happens in the small schools. Small schools have time for that, or nice. charters do that. or And I'm like, no, but, but we can too, but we have to figure out the systems and structures whereby that works. Hi, I'm Katie Martin, and this is the Learner-Centered Collaborative Podcast. I'm an author, mom, educator, and lifelong learner on a mission to create authentic, inclusive, and equitable learning experiences that puts learners at the center. At the Learner-Centered Collaborative, we are guided by the persistent truth that a learner-centered approach is the foundation for a successful, thriving learning community. We are passionate about transforming visions for learning into actionable practices that positively impact learners and learning. During our time together, we'll explore challenges in education today, set ambitious goals for what is possible, and make space to celebrate the bright spots along the way. I'll share vetted practices and strategies that I hope will inform, inspire, and ignite your learner-centered journey. Together, we can empower all learners to actively engage in the world as their best selves. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to the Learner Centered Collaborative Podcast. I am your host, Katie Martin, and today my guest is Melissa Agadello. Melissa is the co-principal of Lincoln High School in San Diego Unified. And prior to her current role, she has led at KIPP, Big Picture Learning, and High Tech High, and started her career at, as a teacher in Teach for America. She has a wealth of experience, and I have so much respect for her as a human and leader. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me, Katie. I'm excited to be here. So we'll start with my favorite question. What are some of the key experiences that have led you to be the educator and leader that you are today? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I, 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 feel, I feel particularly lucky to have started my journey in education through Teach for America. Um, I'm an OG TFA person. <laughs> I did uh, Teach for America in 1995, which is, if you're doing the math, the third year Teach for America was in existence. And, um, and my comments on Teach for America are never meant to throw any shade on anything that's happened since or later. It's really just to shine up my experience with TFA. And that is that I felt myself going into a grassroots group of people who were really looking at wanting to do something like a domestic peace corps. And I think the original idea of Wendy Kopp's vision of having an urban teaching core was very much centered around the grassroots idea, pretty idealistic. Um, 
of having people who wanted to give service back to community. And that's literally exactly what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. um, I anticipated going to law school. I was thinking about wanting to become a, a public defender or a public prosecutor to work within the system. And I quickly realized, thanks to my placement by Teach for America in Phoenix, that if I wanted to impact my Latino community, which I did, there was nothing more grassroots than staying in the field of education. So I 100% I credit Teach for America with not only making me an educator, but keeping me in education. Um, so that was the first most impactful experience that I had. I'm happy to say I'm still in contact with a bunch of kids that I taught um, way back a very long time ago. Like I said, 95 was my first year in the classroom. That so says a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does a lot. So, and and I think that's that's it's been incredibly formative for me. I jokingly say that my plan has always been that once I don't like teaching anymore, I'm going to go back to law school. That's still the plan. <laughs> still the plan. Oh, but so far, you're still in it. So far, I'm still in. I still really love it. Um, I think the second most impactful event that happened for me in my teaching career was I was teaching in Virginia when No Child Left Behind hit uh, hit the market, so mm -hmm. to speak, and. Um, we used to every year have to look at our data. They used to give us these discs back in the day when you still got a disc and it wasn't on a Google Doc. And uh, I'm just going to age myself this entire podcast, I guess. But For we the, like millennials listening. They're like, what is she talking about? <laughs> I'm with you. I'm tracking, though. OK, good, good. So we used to get this disc and we jokingly used to call it it, it was labeled the disaggregator. We used to call it the big aggravator because it broke down data by student subgroup, which was the first time I had really seen that done. So I appreciated having the disaggregated data and being held accountable for all of my students across the spectrum, right? No longer could you cherry pick who showed up on testing day. Like you really had to be held accountable. My concern with it came from the fact that I felt like it caused this doubling down of curricular-based state standards in a way that took my power and efficacy as an educator away and removed all student voice. So I had an interaction with an administrator where I was teaching at the time, I was in the classroom for 15 years and I had cho chosen to move around some of my state standards to make room to do a couple of days on the Harlem Renaissance. I was a US history teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, I will never forget my administrator coming in and saying, Melissa, Harlem Renaissance isn't part of your standards. Um, they got that in the eighth grade. You can't teach that today. You need to get back on the standard. And I was like, they got that in the eighth grade. So are you <laughs> really? Like, so so I, check. Yeah. So check. They already got that. You need, and I was like, well, they also got the civil war in the eighth grade, like, but I'm teaching that again. So as a result, I found myself beginning to really question education. I think a lot of my idealism of my youth began to fall away when I started seeing the reality of the disaggregated data in a way that really I was like, whoa, whoa, that's what's happening to our black kids, to our Latino kids, to our underrepresented communities, that blew my mind. And then coupling that with this doubling down on a curricular approach, approach to teaching that did not respect my building of a, of a classroom culture and instead privileged curriculum, I left teaching. I left, I actually moved out of uh, the state where I was in, came to California and waited tables for a couple of years. And I said to myself, like, I can't 
And, and ironically, I applied to law school. <laughs> I did. Because you I, were serious. I was serious. And I was like, I can't, I can't do that to kids. And and if the system believes that doubling down on curriculum is what's gonna fix the data in the big aggravator, no I mean, how we can anyone believe yet, that? Right. That was 2002. We haven't seen in improvements really that make any notable difference, right? We've doubled down, we've narrowed the curriculum, and we have not seen any data that has really made that impact. Correct, correct. And I have the same suspicion so many amazing educators have, which is my relationship with the kids was more important and seeing yourself in the curriculum was more important and feeling connected to your learning was more important. But the, the spaces I was in didn't value that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, actively worked against it, believing that it was going to cause a change in the system. So I left. I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. Mm -hmm. um, ironic, in, in a strange series of events, which uh, um, I, I'll leave people's uh, superstition or rel religiosity to their own decision making, somehow high tech high fell into my lap. And I remember when I first heard about this idea of project-based learning and learner-centered and teacher-empowered project building, my first response was, yeah, well, that's not real. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, okay, that's what they say they do. But I guarantee you that's not what they really do. But um, I decided to throw my hat back in the ring. The reality is I missed kids. Mm -hmm. Teenagers are my jam. Teenagers are my people. Um, could not love them more. There's something about the age that just clicks with me. And I just love them. I have a lot of patience and love for my teenagers. I ended up getting a job at High Tech High. I was in the classroom for three years and was blown away. Blown away at what I was able to do and how much I was respected as a teacher and how much I was able to privilege those relationships and building classroom curriculum around students. I I, I struggled with it at first because I was like, hold on, wait, you <laughs> wait. I because I here I was with my state curriculum, like I know how to do this. And they were like, you don't have to do teach, teach US history, please. Right. But no, you don't have to drill, you don't have to do this longitudinal approach. Um, so I was blown away having having team teachers that were as a math teacher and a science teacher and being able to draw parallels with them and, and not having a bell ring that my kids responded to. And instead, like being able to negotiate a school day around learning experiences. Uh, I'll be honest with you, Katie. I was like, yeah, whoa, <laughs> like this. Well, I think that response is what so many other people think, right? Unless they haven't seen it. They've been so indoctrinated into how we do school and think that's the only way. And like you said, curriculum, we got to narrow, you know, double down on these things rather than really looking at how we learn. And so many people who don't see it can't even imagine how that is possible. Yeah, I was blown away. I was blown away by what I was able to do. I got really close with my students, loved that time. Um, since then, I've been lucky enough to to marry three of my students to their current spouses. That's awesome. Um, uh, I mean, that's, that's the kind of community that I believed was going to make a difference. Um, I then began to experience a little bit of wondering um, I'll be honest, I, was, I became a little bit disenfranchised with the split between charter and public. 
Um, what began to gnaw, gnaw away at me a little bit was while I, it's very true that schools like High Tech High and other schools absolutely do have a blind lottery and anyone can apply and those things are true and I stand behind them. I began to realize that if the only kids that are putting themselves into the blind lottery are the kids whose parents have the wherewithal to do the research and to want something different for their kids, it it was not a de jure cherry-picked group, but it was a de facto cherry-picked group. And so I began to wonder about, okay, if I believe so much in the, these systems and structures, am I the kind of leader that is gonna be willing to put my money where my mouth is and say, if I believe these structures are good for all kids, am I going to take them to all kids? Yes. Um, that And that is why you are amazing. And you are that kind of leader because that is right. These systems are amazing for a small amount of kids, but there's no reason that we can't create these systems for all kids. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I mean, I wholeheartedly agreed. So, so I made the choice to, to leave high tech high. Um, I ended up with one year at KIPP. I only stayed there one year because, um, as I shared with you just a few seconds ago, high schoolers are my jam. And the KIPP school I was at was a middle school. And what, you know, I think for educators, for a lot of us educators, in the same way that I can't understand a kindergarten teacher, I don't know how you do that. And they look at me and say, I don't know how you deal with 17 year olds. Once you know your people, you know your people. And yeah. so I found myself wanting to get back into the high school world. Um, I am the middle school girl. That's my jam. So I'm going to be picking your brain a little bit as my my kids are moving into high school. I need some of your expertise. Yeah, happy to share the high school. Uh, now that mine are all high school and older, I'm like, you got, I somehow you survived your youth. And we're now at the place where I understand you. Thank goodness. Um, when I left high tech high, I've been a dean of students for seven years. And so I had experienced uh, a lot of experience working in the disciplinary side. Um, I'm a big believer in the anti-school prison pipeline. I don't believe suspension should ever be a first line of defense with very few exceptions. So I had worked a lot in the restorative practices world. And I think that even more pushed me to want to get into, what I call a school like Lincoln, the safety net school. Every single kid has a right to an education mm -hmm. and we are the last stop, right? If a kid goes to a charter, it doesn't work out. They get referred back to their homeschool. If a kid goes to a private school and they get kicked out, they get referred back to their homeschool. If a kid is in a specialty school, a continuation school, an alternative school, and a, an atypical school, if any of those don't work out, you get referred back to your community school. And so I spent a few years with big picture learning mm -hmm. prior to coming to Lincoln because I was really interested in the work-based learning initiatives. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in the idea of building a high school that was career and college, but really career. But actually career and college, not really just <laughs> career and college, right? Where, where, yes, where college is a phenomenal choice for so many kids, don't get me wrong. But career often gets overlooked. Yeah. And, and I was I was feeling very passionately about wanting more kids to come out of high school with those certifications or entrepreneurial skills because even the kids who are going to college though, right? It's good 
skills and important for all kids to be connected to the world outside of just school, but to develop those skills and have options for where they go post K-12. That's right. That's right. And I uh, uh, could not agree more. And, and I think all too often we inadvertently send the message to kids in high school that if you're not college bound, then what you're doing is just other. You're either college bound or you're other. And kids know they're smart. They're oh, smart. Yeah. Right. So when they see the specialty programs and all the kids, we're going to announce all the college admissions, line up kids. And then all the other kids are like, well, I didn't apply because I'm going to get my masonry certificate or I'm doing an HVAC program or I'm learning how to cut hair. They immediately receive a message that that career path is less than and they shouldn't. No, we need those jobs. And they're kids who are doing great things. They feel successful. They're motivated. They enjoy the work they're doing. They have a career path. Like those are those are really great things that kids need to know are not other than right that they are who you are. These are options. And so working with big picture learning was a place where I got to see how much that can really be valued through an internship program that equally values any internship a student is doing and that privileges getting kids out there to start learning the skills and creating their own choice filled life. Um, big picture schools are small. Mm -hmm. And so after four years at the Met in San Diego, working to build a true internship based program. I was asked to consider coming to Lincoln. Um, Lincoln is like, <laughs> um, for all of your listeners, I always say, explain it this way. If you go to any big city and you ask about that high school, you know, the one that everyone kind of knows about, it's in the news sometimes, and that's Lincoln in San Diego. And um, I had heard the stories, the horror stories, the scary stories, but I, again, had to sit at the same dinner table and say, am I going to put my money where my mouth is? And if I firmly believe that all students deserve access, all students, regardless, deserve access to this kind of program, am I going to pick up the gauntlet that's thrown down to say, okay, Melissa, you've got all these skills. You say you believe this. Here you go. Are you going to do it? Um once the staff picked me to to step into leadership, and I was I was really glad to go through the entire hiring process for it. It has been I'm in my third year here at Lincoln, working to mm -hmm. grow these sorts of alternative. And they shouldn't be alternative. These these sorts of systems mm -hmm. that more and more kids need um, to varying levels of success. I'll be honest, like it's it's. I, I often tell people one of the big differences between Lincoln and every other school I've worked at is Lincoln comes from very real trauma begotten of what has really happened to the community of Southeastern San Diego, mm -hmm. the redlining, the over-policing, the food deserts, the food insecurity, the housing insecurity. Those are real things that have happened here in the Southeastern community. And when I accept a a position to lead a school here, schools unfortunately have often been part of the perpetuation of those traumas on the communities they serve. So, so go ahead. So I wanna unpack a little, you know, there's a lot of things that you've mentioned that are, you know, what has happened at High Tech High, KIPP, Big Picture, um, these, these systems that were created in smaller schools intentionally designed these ways and in direct contrast to a school like Lincoln, that was not designed for all kids to be successful, right? It was designed like many of our schools of an industrial era who 
various kids are more successful than others. Right. The first thing I want to really just get your perspective on, because you mentioned it, you, you really um, started working with restorative practices. And especially when you talk about suspension at a school at Lincoln, um, a lot of times people, I've heard this recently, I think there was even an article um, around people being frustrated with restorative practices. They're not even, they're not getting, you know, there's no research that says that they're, um, that the practices are great. And a lot of educators are saying, I don't feel safe because I'm not allowed to discipline my students. And we know that's not actually the, the basis of restorative practices. So when you are talking about restorative practices, will you explain like, what do you actually mean by restorative practices and what happens um, that's different from suspending kids from school? Yeah, I appreciate the question. I think that's definitely true. I think there is a, a misnomer that restorative practices means no consequence or um, I hear this a lot. Oh, that means kid just says they're sorry and they can go straight back to class. And that has not been my experience with it, nor do I think most of us who are fully trained restorative practitioners would 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 support that that's actually the way that it works. I, I think restorative practices does two things. First, it creates a lot more work for the administrators because <laughs> One of the things that has to be true in a restorative system is that you're giving voice to all people involved in the harm. So a no excuses system or a system of zero tolerance, you're able to say, I don't wanna hear it, you fought, I saw on the cameras that you fought, you're going home for three days, that's it. I don't wanna hear your excuses. Restorative practices says, all right, what's going on? Talk to me, what happened? Show me the text that led up to it. Tell me about what's going on at home. Tell me about where you're struggling. Um, this is your third fight you've had in four weeks. And so you're moving through our restorative matrix mm -hmm. of responses. And so now I'm going to have to require that you go to one of our therapists that are here on campus. The point I'm making is that restorative processes gets into process. It's not it's not a restorative, uh, uh, restorative systems can't be static. They're not zero tolerance lists of consequences. They have to be process-based. So that, me that does not mean there are no consequences. Let me be clear, that does not mean that. But what it does mean is you have to start with getting to understand stories. You have to start with privileging the student's experience and working from that. And you have to set up systems of response that are multi-leveled, multi-tiered, and that provide the resources the families need. Right. Regular punitive systems are a lot easier and far less effective. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's not. It's effective. You you've dealt with a. You've given a consequence. You've told someone you have to go home. You can't be here on campus. But that doesn't mean it solved the problem. Right. Right. That is very much the punitive system um, that makes people feel a little bit better, but it doesn't actually get to the root of the challenge or make progress towards making it better. Correct. Correct. And, and if yes, I hear from when I share my my restorative system that we use here at Lincoln with other administrators, I often get, oh, my gosh, you do that every time for every kid. And my answer is yes, but you would be surprised how little I have to go into the steps once I start the process. Right. An effective restorative system that involves 
counselors, that involves safety plans, that involves intake meetings with families so that we can understand the dynamics, that involves therapy and wraparound services, that involves perhaps getting a 504 started if we see there's a diagnosis at play. Um, I don't I don't believe in pulling in the SPED too early because often the diagnosis is already there. So it's not a special ed situation. It's more of a 504. Let's give some of these supports and services now. It takes a lot more time on the front end, but we have the data. We have seen that over three years at Lincoln, our violent incidents have massively reduced, massively reduced. What's interesting right now is we're beginning to experience a spike in social emotional needs, which uh, all of the research tells us is what's going to happen once a kid becomes physically safe, knows that Lincoln is their school and that people here are for them, the emotional trauma will begin to come out. So we've had to work closely with the district to make sure that we have adequate mental health services available, service providers available, so that we're offering those wraparound services. Um, we have a six step process until we finally refer a student for possible expulsion or placement in a different school based on needs. And in three years of being at Lincoln, we have had maybe two students get through that entire process. What was, how does that compare to four years ago or five years ago before you put this system in place? Uh, <laughs> when I first started here, it was the first year after COVID and there was so much trauma coming in after that year and a half of online learning. And there was a lot of desocialization. There was a lot of, I mean, we were experiencing a ninth grade class that had not been in school since sixth grade. Oh my the lack, yeah, the lack <laughs> of socialization was extreme. And so we were experiencing a high number of fights, but we weren't unique. I was hearing this from other leaders like, oh my gosh, like the way that the lack of socialization is so severe. So the way that it, it compares to three years ago is it's a drop in the bucket okay. based on what it was three years ago. And the other thing is we know that our kids understand our system and they they, they they abide by it. I hate using the word abide because I don't want to make kids that are just adhering to a system to be compliant. Mm -hmm. um, I it don't sounds like it's compliant. about relationships, right? Yeah. It's If it's a system that is grounded or rooted in, I see you, I care about you, I don't condone this behavior, I'm not going to let it happen, but we're going to talk about it and I'm going to get to know you, that that is so different. And I imagine much easier at High Tech High or at the Met when it's much smaller. Correct. Um, and you have, <laughs> but I think that's another um, distinction around a bigger system, right? Lincoln is a big traditional comprehensive high school compared to um, High Tech High Met that are smaller schools. So we talked about restorative practices. That's a piece that's a philosophy and culture and how you deal with um, discipline. But another structure that exists at those other smaller schools is an advisory or the small groups or the mentoring, right? How how does that happen or how how are those practices supporting the type of development that you want to see, especially for high schoolers? Right. Yeah. So we actually had an advisory system here at Lincoln that the teaching um, the the teaching staff voted to end this year, which I was 
not really thrilled with, but I have to respect the voice of the mm -hmm. teachers. And we do have a site governance team that maintains a lot of the decision-making around our academic program. And I believe in, I believe in, uh, in unions. And so that was their right and they ended it. Um, I will say what was hard about trying to run an advisory system at a comprehensive high school, which I was trying to wrap my head around is how to build the capacity in all of the adults to be able to run an advisory that honors the intention of advisory when you don't have a curriculum or a grade to give. Um, one of the things that I think is insidious at comprehensive sites is a lot of the kids that we get that cycle through our school have been indoctrinated and have accepted the tyranny of the grade, right? right? The idea that as long as I do the work and get the grade, the learning or the growth or the reflection is secondary to the graded item. Yep. So I've had, I mean, so I, I mentioned Abby's and, you know, started high school this year, but when my kids actually moved from high tech high and we didn't have grades and they came into the, the public back into the, their local schools, we all of a sudden had grades and power school. And that was, that was my communication that was different from like the checking in with this, the teachers at, you know, drop off and just seeing how they're doing. So anyway, I found myself saying to the kids all the time, did you do your homework? What's your grade? Did you, why didn't you do the test or why didn't you turn this in? And Abby finally said to me, mom, you said you don't care about the grades. You always talk about you, the grade is not the main thing, but it's the only thing you talk to me about. And I was like, ooh, I really had to do some reflection on that. And it made me realize, you know, that I'm not an anomaly. A lot of parents, that's how we communicate with our kids. We're trying to build connection. We're trying to find out how they're doing, yet we focus on grades. And then we say, well, the kids only care about grades and they'll only do work for the grades. What's well, the only thing we're asking them about? It's the only thing the teachers are talking about, only thing their parents are asking about. They're comparing themselves with their friends about it. So I, I think that the onus is not just on the kids around you know, them being so focused on what they'll do for a grade. It's how we've how we've prioritized it. And that's what the, the only thing we they think we care about. So but I hear it's this challenge in schools. Now, if it doesn't have a grade, kids aren't really focused on doing it because it doesn't matter. Yeah. And the system is perfectly designed for the outcomes. It, gets. <laughs> it is. But the, so the frustrating thing and I see it. OK, you're at Lincoln. The teachers voted to not have advisory because they haven't seen it be effective. It's frustrating. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I've never seen a school, feel free to push back on me, that has been really well equipped to meet the needs of all kids without an advisory structure. Agreed. Agreed. Without those relational structures that are there purely for relationalism, I've just made a word up. And <laughs> it not works. I'll take it. <laughs> um, and not for just the act of of being in community, which I, I would argue is a purpose of public school, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many theorists that have said public school is citizen creation. It is the creation of a society. It is all of those things that I would argue it is exactly what we need to do. But because of the tyranny of the grade, I've had so many teachers say, well, kids aren't going to come or they're not gonna take it seriously unless I give them a grade. 
I was like a grade for like relationship building and reflection and a weekly check-in. Like why, why would we grade that? And, right. but, but I want to honor, like, I don't want to sound, I, I don't feel any shade on our teachers for that because I think our teachers are also have, you know, for teachers that have really only ever worked within a comprehensive system, of course, of course they will not have seen that. And of right. course the game here has been played a certain way since Lincoln opened in, I believe, 1946. So how do I flip the table on a game that's been being played here since 1946? Right. And I bet there were teachers there who were really successful in the advisory and loved it. But I think of what you said, being able to support educators to understand why it's there, how to be successful in it, how to build those relationships. It's a different skill set and a different type of educator than someone who is really focused on content or has been conditioned to focus on content because of how the school has been designed. Yes. Yes. And, and I did have that conversation with some teachers and, and you can see, unfortunately, the historical trauma that things like, you know, uh, state standard testing and all that has wreaked on a lot of our really experienced and excellent educators. You know, one of the things when I came to Lincoln is there, there's always that verbiage of like, oh, well, teachers at those schools don't really care about kids. Right. False, false, false. False. I teach with some of the most big hearted, loving, caring teachers who have been dedicated to the students mm -hmm. of Lincoln High School for years, years and could easily have moved into a different school. But they chose to stay here for dedication to the community. The disconnect is that some of these practices, these student centered practices, advisory, internship, um, um, regular phone calls home, that is kind of mentally seen as being, oh, well, that's what happens in the small schools. Small schools have time for that or nice. charters do that. or, And I'm like, no, but, but we can too, mm -hmm. but we have to figure out the systems and structures whereby that works. Right. One, of the, one of the most interesting conversations I had with teachers was when I first started and I was pushing like, oh yes, of course, teach US history, but you don't have to worry about all of that content, let's talk about designing some projects. A lot of the, I'll get in trouble if I don't, or I have to mm -hmm. teach this content. And my question was always, who are you gonna get in trouble with? <laughs> who's coming? <laughs> I know, cause I'm scared now too, who's who's coming, right? Especially now that thank goodness state the state testing has moved away from the content mm -hmm. base, the, you know, the tyranny of the content. And I don't love the state testing, so don't get me wrong here, but at least has moved more towards a skills-based analysis and is moving away from the content-based analysis somewhat. Um, well, I mean, I think the piece too, you're right. We have like created these structures. I'm afraid I'm going to get in trouble if I don't do this, but that is, we've put, many educators have put that on themselves, right? To your point, like you're their principal. Who is coming? I've had um, educators tell me, my principal's given me all this freedom. They totally trust me but I'm afraid of the state office. Right. Like, when's the last time you went to a state office or a county <laughs> office? Like they aren't even educators, most of them. Sorry for yep. those of you who are, but they're not coming to the school, right? They just, it's not happening, but we have this idea of like, I will get in trouble if educators are great rule followers, but we need to be able to change the rules so they can understand. Cause the other piece that's really important, it hasn't worked. <laughs> 
Covering the content has not gotten us to higher test scores or better graduation rates or all the things that we really want to see. And so what are we gonna lose, right? Why not try it out? Yep. And then a lot of the new curriculum coming out, like I'll give a small shout out to some of the textbook and some of the curriculum-based companies that are integrating more and more PBL ideas and more mm -hmm. student-centered. I, I, I'll, I'll give them a shout out. I was right. looking at our most recent math adoption and I was like, oh, some of this is kind of dope. Okay, I'm okay with this. Um, those things are put at the end. Right. Like, let's get through the curriculum and then we're going to end with this project. But then when teachers openly acknowledge I can't get through the curriculum, they never get to the cool thing, even right. to help make that segue. Because one of the arguments I've been making is so we're acknowledging we never get to the last three units. OK, well, how about instead we, you know, we slice it up in the beginning so we get to the cool thing at the end. Like, so if we're acknowledging you're not getting to one third of the curriculum. How about we pick the one third we're not going to get to? Right. And just and just not don't even start there. Right. But I, I think the piece is like if we're looking at the systems that exist, so restorative practices, advisory, uh, collaboration for teachers to work together and better understand how to design these projects, how to design those experiences with students, right? That's something that if they've never worked on those projects, they've never seen it done then it's a hard jump to figure out and it feels scary to do. So I believe, and I've seen at High Tech I've met these different schools, you also create time and structures so that teachers can collaborate and do that meaningful work together that are also important structures. Correct. And we worked really hard this year to have um, teachers scheduled by teaching team. We have the kids cohorted this year. So we do have uh, uh, students that are uh, aligned into three smaller learning communities where the teachers have a common prep and are able to plan together. That has resulted in beautiful things like Lincoln now has a portrait of a Lincoln grad. Where awesome. we yeah, and, and uh, not a surprise, with our amazing educators, the portrait doesn't say anything about mastered calculus, <laughs> understands a government, all, all the government units. Instead, it's really about communication, collaboration, mm -hmm. right? And so we're also, for the first time ever in January, about to have our first presentations of learning. So instead of final exams in each of our small teaching teams, the kids at Lincoln will be producing their first POL. Um, it will be very low stakes and it will be like a five minute. You're going to get up and do a reflection, but all of the teachers are bought into it. They develop their own system, baby steps, baby steps, right? Like I can't let, I cannot let perfection be the enemy of the good, right? So we have started with this idea of visioning and we all accept here on this campus that our goal isn't to graduate kids who have mastered the content. Our goal mm -hmm. is to graduate kids who feel a sense of self-efficacy, have the communication and collaboration skills to be able to open up a choiceful life for themselves, regardless of which path they choose. That's what we're, that's what we want to do. Bottom line. And if your classroom is not in service of that and your curriculum is not a vehicle towards that goal, mm -hmm. And yes, you should, be, if you're, if you're teaching chemistry, please teach chemistry. If you have a, an American lit class, please teach American lit. Right. Right. But I know I don't need you to teach Gatsby. You can teach whatever you want. You can teach some Brit Bennett if you want. So, right. We're going back to the structures of, I love that you have the first, you know, PLLs coming out and they're really starting to think broadly about these competencies and 
we can move away from the narrow curriculum. We're teaching standards, right? You're teaching standards, not necessarily just moving through a curriculum and checklist, which is a big difference. Yeah. And you can have a lot of flexibility to integrate, to bring in choice, to you know build on the lives and experiences of students, which is a really powerful move. Yeah, yes. And I will also share, um, I often get the question, like, what is the hardest like part of being of leading through this kind of change? Mm -hmm. And I'd say the single most big, the biggest challenge that I experience is not allowing the baby to be thrown out with the bathwater, like framing all of this as being iterative, like from step one, this will be iterative. Mm -hmm. But if and if we and and if we know that the previous system of education has not served our students, which every bit of data shows, and we acknowledge we need to make some shifts, and these ideas have shown that they do help kids, we might take a couple of semester shots at this POL thing yep. before we finally find the one that works here at Lincoln. So let me share with you the high-tech high example, the big picture learning example, the KIPP example, but this is not replication. This is inspiration. Right. So we've got to get through to what will be us. And that has been the hardest part is when I have teachers that are like, all right, Melissa, we tried it. It didn't work. I'm like, cool. So what are we going to try next? So that's, cool. the piece. that's the piece. And that's hard because of course we want to regress to the mean. I know that. I know that I'm successful at that. Mm -hmm. I've done that for years. But rooting ourselves in the data and constantly saying, wait, 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 we know that doesn't work. We know it worked. You know, we know that you know it and we know that it feels safe and we know it feels recognizable to you and your kids and your parents. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't work. If we have these outcomes, right? If we want kids to be critical thinkers, collaborators, problem solvers, it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. So it doesn't work. So I love what you said, and I want to highlight that, that you've got to go back and iterate, right? It's not going to work the first time. Oh. The first time we do a lot of things, we fall on our face, they're hot messes. We learn some things. How are we going to make sure that there's um, the culture is safe, the community is there to test out stuff. And then kids also, right? They're not going to learn things and do it perfectly the first time. And if the educators can embrace that, they can bring students along. Totally, awesome. totally, totally. And, and this is us modeling what we're hoping our kids do, right? Right. Like, it's okay for us to say to our kids, yeah, so we set a goal of these POLs and we had about 40% success rate, but we need to go back to the drawing board. Not, well, that didn't work. How, here's your final exam, <laughs> right. right? That didn't work for sure. So yeah. Well, I'm gonna guess that your profile of a Lincoln graduate um, isn't, isn't restrained to just the students, right? I'm assuming that those same competencies are the things you want to see in your educators and that you expect them to be modeling. Administrators, uh, uh campus security guards, uh, uh, teachers, you name it. Everybody on campus should be showing those exact same things. Cause it can't be do as I say, not as I do, please. It has to be a fully integrated culture. I love it. All right, I could talk to you forever, but I'm going to take you to the rapid fire. Um, I appreciate the just discussion around these smaller charter schools and how um, they don't have to be separate. We can bring those practices into our larger comprehensive schools. And like you said, making them smaller 
uh, so that we can actually build those relationships. Yep. So first question, what is one thing we should stop doing in education? Grading. Thank you. <laughs> so many conversations about that. Uh, what's one thing we should start doing? Privileging student stories. Love it. What should we keep doing? What should we keep doing? We should keep having these kinds of conversations that push us to be iterative. Yep, I love it. What's something you are focusing on or learning right now as an educator or leader? How to lose an argument, but keep my eyes focused on my hopes as well. It comes from your prosecute, the being a lawyer, right? <laughs> yep. Um, what's one thing people, many people don't know about you? Oh my gosh, about me? Yeah. Uh, the contrary to popular belief, I do get exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe it. Do you have a favorite quote or saying that guides you? Yeah, I, my favorite quote, it's, I jokingly tell my kids it's my next tattoo, is I really love Frida, Kahlo, Kahlo, Frida Kahlo's quote, um, I'm not fragile like a flower, I'm fragile like a bomb. I love her. Yeah. What are you grateful for? My children. My three girls, they, when I need to get out of here, they are the three that really help me get out of what I'm perseverating on. So my girls. Awesome. All right. Last but not least, your hope for the future of education. Oh my goodness. You know, I feel like I've seen education come so far in my experience in the now almost 30 years I've been in it. My hope for the future of education is that the change keeps coming, that the train keeps keeps moving, and that at some point we are gonna have a system that is not gonna privilege grades and curriculum and we're gonna privilege students and, and real learning. Melissa, thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for your experience and bringing it into many other systems and just being the leader that you are. Grateful for this time together. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it too, Katie. Thanks for listening to the Learner-Centered Collaborative Podcast. We want to hear from you, so be sure to share your key takeaways using the hashtag LCCPodcast on social media. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave a review to help others find the show. To learn more about Learner-Centered Collaborative, head over to LearnerCentered.org. This episode was hosted by Dr. Katie Martin, produced and edited by Paul Haluszczyk, and web support was provided by Andy McCranny. Thanks again for listening and catch you on the next episode.